Good morning. It's good to be with you. Hope you're doing well this morning. Let me invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Judges chapter 6, the passage that our friend Steve just read for us. If you don't own a Bible, know that there's some provided out in the bar here. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take that as our gift to you. And as you're turning to the passage this morning as a way of introducing uh, the story this morning, I would invite you to think with me on a series of questions. What happens when your expectations don't line up with reality? In other words, what do you do when what you thought would happen doesn't actually happen? This might be as simple as that hair growth cream that promised new follicles doesn't deliver. The warranty is not as good as you thought when your item breaks. How about the, the frustrating occurrence of the GPS? misleads you on a direction you thought it was taking you? What happens when you step into a relationship or a marriage and you think there's going to be passionate romance, deep intimacy, love and respect, and yet you fail to communicate? There's neither love nor respect. You don't feel heard or loved. What happens? Maybe these examples are, have been realities in your life, but if not, I think it's safe to say we can conclude a couple things. Right? When our expectations are less than what actually happens, in other words, when, when we're surprised by our expectations being overmet, we oftentimes are happily surprised. But when they're not met, we can get disappointed. We can get skeptical. We can get angry. We can get disinterested. I, I saw this especially happen for all the Star Wars fans when Star Wars Episode Eight came out. Right? They have, Star Wars fans have an expectation of the quality of movie that will happen. And then there was episode eight. I've seen this happen again and again with Seattle sports fans, especially if you root for the Seahawks or the Mariners. I could say especially the Mariners. Every season there seems to be a promise of this is the year. The team's finally getting it together. We got the pitching in place. We have the bullpen. And then there goes another year. Have you ever had this happen with your idea or your thought of God? You expect God. You have this idea of who God is, and yet you look at the reality, and the reality doesn't match your expectation of God. You might think and believe that God is this loving, present being who's with you, and yet you neither feel like he's present nor loving. You think about the bad things that have happened in your life, the bad people that have done horrible things to you, and you wonder, how could God be loving? Maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. You think you have this idea of God as just and angry and vengeful. And yet you look out in the world and you see, how does all of these good things happen to bad people? How do the wicked prosper? How is God just? I think in the story of Judges 6 in Gideon, it invites us and it welcomes us to look at these questions. Judges 6 introduces us to a guy named Gideon. And Judges spends three chapters talking about this guy, Gideon. Judges 6, 7, and 8. Judges 6 is kind of the background on Gideon, the call that God gives to Gideon, and the first couple commands that God gives to Gideon uh, to accomplish. The story of Judges in Judges 6, 1 uh, happens just like the Judges that we've seen before. Kind of the, the theme that happens, verse 1, Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So people of God rebelled against God. They broke their covenant relationship with him. They started worshiping other gods. They do what was evil in his sight. And they don't 
they're kind of forgetful. These forgetful people, they, they haven't really learned their lessons from how God delivered them from guys like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. I don't remember how God has delivered them through the combination of people like Deborah, Barak, and Jael. The people of Israel keep falling back into their rebellious ways. They're not learning their lesson, and, and the oppression gets worse and worse. And here we're told that the people weren't just oppressed, they were ravaged. There was no sustenance left in the land. The, the Midianites would come in like swarms of locusts, and they would leave no, no ox, no donkey, no sheep. They would lay waste to the land. They destroyed the crops. In verse 6, it says that Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Another way to think about that is they were poverty-stricken. And this continues the normal cycle or pattern that we've seen all throughout Judges, that the people of Israel sin, they're oppressed, they cry out to God, and God brings out to deliver. But in the story of Gideon, we have a little difference in the cycle. We have something new that's inserted there. Instead of immediately raising up a deliverer, God sends a prophet. So the people of, of God, they cry out to the Lord. And in verse 7, it says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in, those in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. We might think this is a cruel response of God, that they're crying out to God for a deliverer and he rebukes them. He sends this prophet but this is a much-needed word that the Israelites need to hear. The prophet is reminding them that God's word is true, that everything God said would happen, happened, that this is because they are not hearing God's voice, and that is an especially important phrase, that last phrase. Uh, keep that in mind as we look at the story of Gideon. Judges 6, verse 10, you have not obeyed my voice. This is the transition that introduces us into the story of Gideon, and it's important that remembering and knowing and believing the word of God is an important aspect in the rest of the story of Gideon. So the narrative describes in verse 11 that an angel of the Lord comes to this guy named Gideon, son of Joash. And Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, you don't have to know uh, ancient history. You don't have to be fluent in Greek or Hebrew to know that wheat is not normally threshed in a wine press. What normally happens in a wine press is grapes are crushed, not wheat being thrashed. Wheat was normally thrashed on an open floor or on an elevated floor where the wind would blow away the chaff. So this is peculiar, something that Gideon is doing here. And then the narrative describes that he was hiding from the Midianites. That's why he was doing this. It shows the, the dire, desperate condition of the Israelites, the way that they lived in fear, that they had to thrash their wheat in a wine press. And God comes to Gideon, son of Joash, and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, upon first glance, you see, okay, here's a man who's hiding. He's thrashing wheat in a wine press. What is so mighty and valorous about this? What is so mighty? What is this heroic man who's, God called a mighty warrior, he's hiding from the Midianites? That doesn't seem mighty or warrior-ish, warrior-ness, like a warrior. <laughs> right, is this a joke? Now, some think God is being sarcastic here. Some think God is making a little jab at Gideon. But could it be that God is describing who Gideon will be? 
who Gideon, who Gideon is because God is with him. Even though Gideon comes from the weakest clan, the least of his fathers, as the narrator says in verse 15, even though he comes from an insignificant background, I think this story shows us that Gideon is a valiant warrior, a mighty man of valor because God is with him, because God is present with him, because God has chosen him. He has elected him. But Gideon doesn't seem to believe this, and he questions God's presence in his life. He says in verse 13, why? Please, Lord, if, if you're with us, why has all this happened? And he asks, where? Where is the Lord? We heard these stories of wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted, saying the Lord brought us up from Egypt. And then he assumes, he concludes that because of this, that the Lord has forsaken us. He has left us. He has abandoned us. Gideon's expectations do not match up with his reality. Since he expects things of God that weren't true, He's not keeping God's word in mind here that the prophets spoke. He concludes that God is not with him or his people. He concludes that God is not for us, that the Lord has forsaken us. And, and Gideon asks more questions. He says in verse 15, How? God, how can I save Israel? I'm insignificant. My tribe is weak. I'm the least in my father's house. Verse 17, he says, okay, prove it to me. Like He's asking for signs here now. And you see God responds to him every time. Verse 14, do not I send you. In other words, he's saying, go, I'm sending you. Verse 16, I will be with you. You will strike the Midianites down as one man. And then you see the story of God proving it, God giving him a sign, God uh, doing a miracle. So Gideon takes this goat and unleavened cakes and this broth and he presents them to this angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, put it on this rock, pour broth over it. Angel of the Lord sticks out his staff and touches it, and fire comes out of the rock. That's a miracle. He's showing him a sign that he is with him. And after Gideon witnesses this miracle, he says, alas. That's a way of saying, oh no. <laughs> I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. This was a deadly, dangerous thing to see the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, now, some, because of the way that certain things are worded in this story, would argue that this angel of the Lord is actually an appearance of the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. Especially when you look at the fact that it's described as the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, but in verse 14 it says, the Lord turned to him. And then we have this idea of the Lord speaking to him. So we had this angel of the Lord and we had the Lord. And is it the Lord speaking through the angel is now the Lord speaking, and, and that can be a little confusing. But some would argue that this is a clear example, a hint of the Trinity, that God is multipersonal, that this figure here is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And I think this is why God might ha or Gideon might have the response he does in verse 22. I've seen the face of God. That's a dangerous and deadly place to be. Uh, I, a couple other guys had seen the fa or were warned about this. A guy named Jacob in Exodus, excuse me, Jacob in Genesis 32:30. He wrestles with God, and he says uh, he calls this place where he wrestled with God the face of God. He says because I saw the face God face to face, and yet my life was spared. God later tells Moses in Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face. If you see my face, you will die." So the point being here that God shows mercy and grace and kindness to Gideon that he lives. And he reassures him of this when he says, peace be to you, do not fear. And out of this 
thankfulness. It seems like he builds an altar to God, and he calls this altar in verse 24, the Lord is peace. So from this calling, from this reassurance of his presence, from this sign being shown, God gives him a command. The very next verse, 25, that night the Lord said to him, take two bulls, take them and tear down this altar of Baal. And that's ironic because Baal would have been symbolized by a bull. But take these two bulls and pull this altar down and and take your father's Asherah pole, which would have been a pagan uh, kind of altar, a, a pole that you would worship and cut it down and take the wood from that pole and make a fire and sacrifice the bull and have a burnt offering. So pretty resourceful what's going on here. Take this bull down and and this mighty valiant warrior Gideon takes 10 men and he does it at night because the narrator says that he was too afraid of his family. He was too afraid of the men of the town to do it by day. He's asked to tear down uh, the idols of your family and he's too afraid. The next morning, the men of the town wake up. They see what's happened. They go to Joash, Gideon's father, and they say, bring us your son that we may kill him. Okay, this kind of shows the corruption of the people, right? A faithful Israelite who tears down altars, who does what the Lord has commanded, they want to kill this guy. You, tear, you tore down the altar of Baal. You cut down the Asherah pole. He must die. And Joash shows some courage. Gideon's father, he says, you guys want to fight for Baal? If Baal's a god, he'll fight for himself. Let him fight for himself. He sees this god, and he's so concerned about his name being defamed. Let him fight for himself. And Gideon gets this cool nickname called Jerubal. It means let, let Baal contend for himself. And in verse 33 through 35, Gideon rounds the tribes. He is clothed with the, the spirit of God. He sounds the trumpet, right? It seems like Gideon is getting ready to go into battle to deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites. Things are looking good and and going up. He's about to lead into battle. And yet we are told of another example of fear and doubt and unbelief. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you might know about the story, the famous sign of the fleece. Notice what Gideon says in verse 36. Okay, so God has spoken to him through the angel of the Lord. He has shown him a sign through making fire come out of a rock. And Gideon says, if you will save Israel by my hand. You see the doubt and the unbelief in Gideon. Now, I would remind you that what we see through the book of Judges is uh, oftentimes prescriptive. Oh, excuse me. It's oftentimes descriptive, not prescriptive. So when we look at this passage and we see the sign of the fleece, I think it would be foolish of us to take a similar logic and say, well, Gideon did it. So God, do you want me to get this job? Uh, Let it rain tomorrow, right? God, if you want me to date, tell me not to, right? And sometimes we even set God up to, to do things that we would want him to do. That's not the point that's going on here. In fact, what What Gideon is doing is in direct violation to God's word. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the same verse that Jesus quotes when he's tempted by Satan. It's not a good thing to test God. Gideon apparently knows that it's wrong too, because he says uh, in verse 39, Let not your anger burn against me, 
Let me just speak once more. Let me test you one more time. I mean, I know you said, okay, on one hand, the fleece is going to be dry. Now the, the ground is going to be wet. The fleece is going to be wet. Now the ground is going to be dry. Like he keeps asking for these signs and he's testing God. He even says it to God himself. Let me test you just once more. That's ironic because Gideon is shown as having really lacking in courage, but yet he has the courage to test God. I mean, baffling to me. We see in Gideon that even though he's clothed with the Spirit of God, as the narrator tells us in verse 34, that he struggles to believe God's word. He struggles to have faith even though he knows God's word. He knows that it's been commanded to him. God has already given him a sign. He asks for a second. He asks for a third. Gideon struggles to have faith. And yet what we see in the story is that God does not give up on Gideon. Gideon. The new, pro- the new judge that we're learning about next week, Gideon. Just like Halakai. Gideon struggles to have faith, but God does not uh, give up on Gideon. God's plan is not frustrated because of Gideon's lack of faith or his unbelief. God will save Israel through Gideon in spite of Gideon. There's a lot of things that we can glean from this story. I mean, there's a lot of verses in here, 40 whole verses. But there's one thing that I want to highlight uh, as we're seeking to answer that first question. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Right, those three questions that we're looking at every week to help us focus on what the text says, on what God is trying to speak to us, these questions that, are, that we are using to help us grow as students of God's word, and we're seeking to answer that first question in our handout. What does this story show us about God and his relationship with his people? And there's one truth I want to highlight. God is with his people. God is present. God hears the cries of his people and he comes. The angel of the Lord comes. Verse 12, the Lord is with you. It says in verse 16, I will be with you. Despite what Gideon thinks, despite how he thinks that God has forsaken him and left him, that God has abandoned his people, God reminds Gideon, I'm with you. And we see God's presence manifested in a couple different ways here. Number one, God sends a prophet. God is with his people by sending prophets to remind them of his word. It's a way of his presence being seen in the story. Number two, God empowers and sends Gideon in his presence. God is with his people by choosing and empowering Gideon. He calls him, he sends him, he clothes him in his spirit. Verse 14, go, I'm sending you. Verse 34, God is sending his spirit to clothe Gideon. We also see God's presence manifested here by his patience. That God's presence is not determined by weak faith or by struggling faith or by reluctant faith. God's presence is given by sheer grace. Grace alone. God's presence is patient. Despite Gideon's multiple requests for signs and proving God's presence and that he's with him. God is patient with Gideon. His anger doesn't burn against Gideon. He's gracious and kind. So we see in the story that it's a sending presence, an empowering presence, a patient presence by grace. God is with his people. And the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, I believe should give us great hope and comfort and encouragement. Because as we look at the story of Gideon, we have a doubting, skeptical, reluctant, unbelieving judge. We have a judge who is afraid, who struggles to believe God's word, yet God is patient with him. God reminds him of his presence again and again. God empowers Gideon with his own spirit. And Gideon is so concerned about signs. 
prove your love for me, prove that you're with me, prove that you're for me, prove that this is going to happen. And I think it's providentially fitting with all this talk of signs that we are in the Advent season. Because all throughout the Bible, God has, unlike the story of Gideon, where Gideon you know, asked for signs, God gives signs to his people to show him that he is with them. And of course, as we are in the Advent season, celebrating the birth of Jesus, God gives multiple signs that this will happen, that he will be with his people. A guy by the name of Isaiah prophesies this, that one day there will be a future deliverer, a future judge, a final savior. And he says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's Isaiah 7, 14. You flip the pages of your Bible in the New Testament, you see that that other signs are promised to God's people that he is with them. You see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. An angel of the Lord comes, sent from God to a place called Nazareth, appears to this virgin named Mary, who is insignificant, insignificant background. And the angel says, greetings, O favored one. What makes Mary so favored? Because of God's grace, he has chosen her and revealed himself to her. He says, the Lord is with you. The angel promises that she will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Jesus. He will be the one that's the promised Messiah, the one who would right every wrong, the the future and final judge. Yet there's more signs. When Jesus is born, an angel of the Lord sent from heaven comes to shepherds, insignificant people from insignificant backgrounds. They say, fear not. For behold, I am bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For this day a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. This will be a sign. You shall find this Savior, a baby, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And the angels start singing to God, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. You see the theme of what, what's happening here, how Gideon points us to Jesus, this baby from an insignificant town, a podunk town of Nazareth, grows up and he lives a perfect life. He lives a life of always doing good in the sight of the Lord. Unlike Israel, he never does evil in his sight. Unlike Gideon, he does not doubt. He's not fearful. Jesus lives a life of bold obedience, even going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. Jesus becomes that bull, that sacrifice, that sacrificial lamb whose blood shed brings forgiveness to sinners, whose body on the cross brings peace. Jesus experienced hell and trouble and wrath and distress on the cross so that humanity might experience peace in him. Jesus serves as the ultimate sign the ultimate proof, the ultimate testimony that God is with us. That if you turn to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can have peace. That God loves sinners. That he is for sinners. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with how could a God love me, maybe you're skeptical about the claims of the Christian faith. 
wondering, how can this God love sinners? How, how is God with us? Show me a sign that God loves sinners, that he's with us, that he is for us. There is no greater sign than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the sign that God loves sinners. It's the sign of what he paid to love and, and invite sinners into reconciliation, into peace with God. But the beauty of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ is that he did not stay dead on a cross. He did die. He was buried. But after three days, he rose again. He left the tomb. And now the empty tomb is the sign that God is conquerous, victorious. He has conquered death. That he is with us because he is no longer dead. He is not dead. He is alive. Jesus promised his people before he left that I'm, the Father is going to send the Spirit to be with you forever. So what Jesus told his disciples as he left in Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is always with his people. Therefore, because of these realities, because of the pursuing patient presence, the grace of God, because of what we see in the story, the connection of Gideon and Jesus, the signs that he's shown us in Christ. I believe this story calls us to rest in God's promises and trust in his word. To know God as he reveals himself in his word and cling to his promises. To take God's word at what it is. Believe that he is with us and for us. This is the exhortation that this story offers. This is the answer to question three. If we do not know God, if we are not growing in our understanding of him as he reveals himself in his word, we may formulate an idea of God that we can manage. We may formulate expectations of God that are not true on his word. We may end up worshiping ourselves or a God that we like to worship. And what happens when our expectations and our realities clash? We can either reject God, reject his goodness, his presence, that he is not with us, that he does not love his people, or we can believe that God has rejected us. That since God is just, how can he love me? How can he use me or choose me? He would never do that. If we do not know God and trust in his promises as he reveals them in his word, I don't believe we will experience the joy, the freedom, the peace that God promises. The life that is to characterize a life of a Christian. We might live angry or confused or troubled or shame-filled, guilt-ridden lies. We may turn to false gods. We may become self-absorbed or be, turn to become self-medicating and look to things, people, hobbies that promise to numb us or comfort us or solve our worry, our fear, our, fear, our guilt, our anger. We will not have the fullness of life that Jesus promises. We will not have a boldness in obedience. We will not be marked by a kind of Christian courageousness. Our faith will be weak. Do we want to grow our faith? How do we grow our faith? We wait around with our fingers crossed and ask for some fleece. 
The Bible is clear. How, you want to strengthen your faith? You want to grow your faith? You want to grow as a courageous Christian? You want to grow in obedience? Plunge yourself in the faith awakening, the faith sparking, the faith igniting word of God. Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans 8, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. That's a pretty simple formula, right? We want to grow in our faith. We don't sit around, hum, okay, God, strengthen my faith. Here I am. We plunge ourselves in God's word. We saturate ourselves in God's word. We soak in God's promises. We cling to God's promises. We cling like that afraid child who is missing their parent and grabs a leg of their father or mother. We cling to, that, to the God's word like someone who is shipwrecked and drowning clings to a life preserver. Do we have this resolve, this determination to cling to God's word? I fear oftentimes we, we don't realize the condition that we're in, the peril, the dangerous situation that we can be in when we are not clinging to God's word. We are alone at sea, drowning in the ocean, thinking that we are on a beach sunbathing. May we cling and meditate and ponder and memorize God's word that anchors our faith, that reminds us as we doubt, as we worry, as we struggle with unbelief. We cling to God's word as we use it as our weapon against spiritual warfare. I think one of the reasons that it's so hard for us is that the gospel it seemingly is sometimes too good to be true. The gospel is not like anything in this world. Everything in this world is you receive what you perform. You are what you do. You get what you deserve. And in the gospel is grace. We get far better than we ever deserve. I need to be reminded that God loves me. It's not based on what I've done. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. And I'm reminded of that in his word. My faith is strengthened in his word. I need to be continually reminded of it and immersed in God's word. And friend, you do too. Plunge yourself in God's word. I've seen it in my life, my problems, and I think our problems come from we don't know God's word. We don't cling to his promises. We struggle with unbelief and we sit in unbelief, not going to the source that will solve our unbelief, which is God's word. We don't know what God has done and what he has promised. We don't know who we are in light of those realities. We subtly or overtly disbelieve him that he is good, that he is with us, that he loves us. Our problems boil down to unbelief. And the way we fight unbelief is with the gospel, with God's word in our hand, with God's people around us, reminding of who God is, speaking the truths of the gospel into our life, encouraging us and edifying us with God's word. May we be that church to one another. We cling to God's promises. So when we are struggling with feeling alone, we cling to Romans, to Psalm 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When we struggle with feeling scattered and troubled, we cling to God's promises in Philippians 4, 7. That as we take everything in prayer with thanksgiving to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
We cling to God's promises when we struggle to pray. In Matthew 5, 11, that our God is a good father. He loves to give good gifts to his children who ask him. He's not gonna give us a scorpion. He's not gonna give us a snake or a rock. When we are tired and overwhelmed, we cling to God's promises in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't need more vacations. We don't need more free time. We don't need to sleep more. We need the rest of Jesus. We need to cling to his promise. When we need help and wisdom, we cling to God's promise in James 5, 1, 5. You can always pray this prayer. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God and who gives generously to all who ask without reproach and it will be given to him. Let's cling to that promise. When we are suffering and doubting God's goodness, we cling to God's promise in Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When we are overcome with guilt and fear and shame, we cling to God's promise in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 2 says this, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. How would you assess your tool belt? your clinging to God's promises, your resolve in his word. My friends, cling to these promises and others like them. Plunge yourself into the word of God. Saturate yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ to strengthen your faith, increase your fellowship with him, embolden your faith, strengthen your obedience, and may God give us strength and grace to know him, to trust him, to follow him, So Father, I ask now, would your spirit come and help us to understand and remember, to be mindful of your word? Would would we grow in, in knowledge of you, in determination and love for your word? Spirit, would you convict and challenge those in this room who are complacent, who are sleepy, who are in a dangerous condition and may not even know the peril that they are in? Father, I pray for us as the church that we would love your word, that we would encourage one another with your word. And would this lead to greater joy and freedom and peace and love? We thank you for the story of Gideon and how it reminds us of your grace and your patience with us. It reminds us of your presence with us. And Father, now would we sing to you? Would we bask in your presence? Would we rest in your promises? Pray this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.